It was November of 1992 in Suffolk, England, and a gentleman by the name of Peter Watling is just trying to earn a living as a scratch farmer, just trying to earn enough in order to feed himself and his family and possibly even earn a very modest income so that he can provide for his family, just doing his best to get by. And on this particular day, he looks down at his tool belt and he discovers that he has lost his hammer at some point during the day and instantly two thoughts pipe up in his mind. Number one, he knows that he's been all over the field that day and it would take absolutely forever for him to retrace his steps in order to find this lost hammer and is it worth it to spend all that time for a lost $20 hammer? But the second thought that he has is if ever he was using a piece of machinery or equipment and that caught the hammer, then the cost could be a whole lot more than $20. And so he decides he needs to retrace his steps in order to find his lost hammer. And for the rest of the afternoon into the evening, he searches and searches, but he cannot find it. And until he, he can't even see his own hand in front of his face, he calls it quits and he goes to bed. Early the next morning, he calls up his neighbor by the name of Eric Laws, and he says, hey, Eric, are you willing to come out into the field in order to help me find my hammer? Because Eric has a metal detector, and Eric says, sure, I'd be happy to do that, and they start searching out in the field, and almost instantly, within the first hour, the metal detector goes off. They start unearthing what is there, and they find a single gold coin. They dig a little bit further, and then they find a silver coin and a silver spoon. They dig a little bit further, and then they find a necklace. Now, one of the things that we have to know is that both of these two men knew that if they find a treasure like this that seems to be of some antiquity, that their responsibility was to stop what they were doing and to call the authorities. What would you do? Well, these two men are men of integrity and they stop what they're doing and they call the police and the police call the city council and the city council calls uh, the archaeologists and instantly, once they arrive, they make a dig site and they start digging and digging and digging until thump, they hit a chest with a ton of different compartments and they discover that this chest was uh, from the fourth century Roman Empire. And let me just share with you to make sure that I have everything accurate here. Here's what was in this chest. 14,865 Roman gold, silver, and bronze coins, more than 200 pieces of silverware, and handfuls of golden jewelry. And these two men are absolutely elated until they are informed that this, what they have unearthed, is a treasure trove property of England. But a little bit of time goes on and they discover that England will do what they should do and they will uh, give them the monetary value of everything that's within this treasure. And so it takes a couple of weeks and the treasure committee determines that everything in this treasure is valued at four million dollars. And they write out a check and they give that check to, get this, Eric Laws, the man with the metal detector. 
But being a man of integrity and knowing that the only reason he was there is because his friend Peter Watling asked him to find the hammer, he decided to split the income 50-50 and both of them go home with a huge payday. And I know all of you are still wondering, did they ever find the hammer? And the answer to that question is, yes, they found the hammer. And on that particular day, Peter Watling, this scratch farmer who is just trying to make ends meet, he decides, I'm retired, and he takes that little hammer and he makes it part of the story. He donates it to the archaeologists. I love stories like this. Stories of unearthing lost or hidden treasure. I think, for instance, of the story in which uh, a man was in uh, just at a yard sale and he saw a beautiful picture and he decided to purchase it for a couple of bucks. He brings it home and only years later, he takes it out of the glass case and he flips it over and on the other side is the Declaration of Independence. A very similar story happened recently in Nashville in which a man goes into a thrift store, he buys a, a copy of the Declaration of Independence for $2.84. And when he goes home, he says, this seems to be a little bit more authentic. And he gets it evaluated and they discover that it is one of only 200 known original copies of the Declaration of Independence and he is given $500,000 in order to sell it to the authorities. We love stories like this. I mean, if Julie told me that I could find hidden treasure at a thrift store, I'd still not go. But it would be so much closer if I knew that. There's just something about hidden treasure that makes us excited, doesn't it? And I absolutely love in the story that we're going to read today that Jesus goes there. It's no wonder on this particular day, Jesus, there's a, a, a huge crowd all around him. He goes out on a boat and in a day and age in which there is no Fort Knox, there are no places like the Federal Reserve Bank or the Bank of England Gold Vault or the Iron Mountain or the Iron Vault. None of those places existed back then. People typically, when they had something of infinite value, they would hide it under the sand, under the earth, where only they knew where it was. And Jesus decides to go there. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. And while you're looking for that, for the sake of our guests, we are continuing in our storyteller series where we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And Jesus, what we find is one of the reasons why he uses parables was something that we discovered only two weeks ago. Let's just have this fresh in our mind again. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 says this. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see, and though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And so here's two things that we have to remember, just a review of what we learned two weeks ago for the sake of our guests or to have it fresh in our mind once again today as we consider this parable. Here's two reasons why Jesus constantly used parables. The first is this, he uses a story 
that uses something familiar to explain the unfamiliar. So he uses a regular, routine, mundane thing that is very accessible to us, that, that we comprehend and can fully understand in order to highlight a more profound fourth dimensional truth, in order for us to have a greater understanding of the gospel of God. But the second thing that we recognize is that their primary purpose is to both conceal and reveal. Now, here's something we have to understand about the heart of Jesus for a moment. Jesus not only loves his disciples, his followers, his friends, but Jesus also loves his enemies. And what we see is that Jesus uses parables as a means of grace to both. Now, for those uh, who are right on that edge, ready to follow Jesus, he uses a parable in such a way that it draws them in so that they can have a greater understanding of who Jesus is in order to fall down and to worship him and to follow him. But for those whose hearts are hardened and who are far off from Jesus, he would use a, a, a parable that they wouldn't understand and they would just walk away from him. Here's the reason why. We know in Scripture that Scripture communicates to us that we are accountable for the things that we have been told, the things that we know and understand, which means the more we know about the gospel of God, if we choose to reject it, we will be held accountable for that. We will be judged more harshly for that. And so Jesus, as, as a means of grace to those who don't yet have the heart to receive it, he uses a parable and they say, I don't get it. It's an obscurity to them. And then they walk away. Jesus switches to parables because he knows we are accountable for what we hear, and we will be judged more harshly for the things that we know. And so with that, let's look at the parable for a moment. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. If your Bibles are open, turn there with me. It says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. So the, the crowd, they, they come up to Jesus, and Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and I think we've got to stop right there. We have to ask ourselves, why is Jesus always talking about the kingdom? What does the kingdom mean? And so here's what we have to see. I put this in your note sheet. I put it this way. The kingdom of God is this. God's rule and reign everywhere, which is established now, but also not now. Jesus' kingdom is here, but also it's not here yet. Clear as mud? Here's what we need to recognize. Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension on high, all of those are happening in past tense, which means his defeat over death is already done. And the Apostle Paul highlights to us that Christ's death is also our death. His resurrection is also our resurrection. His ascension is also our ascension. And so in that sense, we recognize that our judgment day has been yesterday. It's already done. He has already defeated the power and the effect of sin and death and darkness. It's all over and done away with. And so God's kingdom is fully here. But by the same token, it, every single person on the planet can look around and say, we're still living in darkness. We still live in a broken and sinful world, do we not? And so one of the questions we might ask ourselves is, what is Jesus waiting for? 
Clearly, not all things have been made new. Clearly, we're still longing and waiting for the day in which Jesus Christ will return again in glory and everything will be made perfect and we're still waiting for that. Why isn't he here yet? And the most basic answer that I can give you is that Jesus is waiting because his salvation project is still incomplete. There are still those who do not yet know the name of Jesus, and so that in his mercy and in his grace, he waits because he longs for more to come to know his name. Which for those of us who are followers of Jesus, may I say, this reality ought to give us a greater sense of urgency in communicating the gospel message knowing that as we share the gospel, God's kingdom is advanced. And knowing, as we learn in the book of Revelation, the desire of our hearts ought to be, come Lord Jesus, come soon. As I look at the brokenness in this world, I long for you to come again. And God says in his grace and in his mercy, he is waiting so that more people can come to him, to know him as their personal Lord and Savior. Then we ought to have a great sense of urgency to communicate the gospel message with those who do not yet know it. And so Jesus says, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is kind of like a scratch farmer who lost his hammer, let's just say. And he goes out into a field and he starts looking for this hammer. And while looking for it, he unearths some ground and there he finds a hidden treasure. And upon finding that hidden treasure and knowing that this is not his plot of land, he kind of buries it again. He goes into town. He sells everything that he owns so that he can purchase this plot of land. And then Jesus says, you don't like that story? Let me tell you another one. Same story, different way. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, he sold everything he had, and he bought it. So it's kind of like you're at that thrift store and you see that declaration of independence and you know that it is of infinite value. Do you not go and sell everything that you have in order to buy this thing that is infinitely precious, that is of great, incredible value, that regardless of the cost that you have to spend in order to get this thing, you're willing to lose it all in order to get what is most precious to you. And so you think in your mind for a moment, this might be the type of person that says, you know what, I, I know what I need to do. I need to sell my mortgage, or I need to take out a second mortgage, or I need to drain my RSP or my social insurance, or I need to drain my bank accounts. I need to liquidate everything that I own in order to get this thing that is so valuable to me. I need to have that. I need to have the hidden treasure. And that's what Jesus is pointing to in this story. Everything that you have in your possession pales in comparison to this treasure that you have just unearthed and you know you have to have it. And so with that in mind, there, there's just a few questions that I want to propose to you. And my encouragement to you is that today, when this is done, before uh, night comes, before you go to sleep, that you would engage with these three questions yourself. The first question worth asking is this. Do we understand the infinite value of what we have? Do we understand the infinite value of what we have? 
Now this is obviously a question for those of us who are, always, are already followers of Jesus. Do we recognize that when we stepped over that line to follow Jesus, we discovered the gospel and the gospel changes every aspect of our life and we have a sure and certain hope in future glory where all things will be made new and our first day will be the first of the rest of our days and as we sing together we say even after we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Is that the desire of your heart? Do you know how infinitely precious the gospel is to you? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, especially for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, there's, there's two different things that can happen in our hearts. The first thing that can happen, which I hope is what happens in your heart, is what we read about or sing about in, in a hymn that perhaps is very familiar to many of us, it goes like this. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. See, for many of us who have been following Jesus for a long, long time, we never grow tired of hearing that beautiful truth that we have been set free on account of the gospel. It is of infinite, precious value to us. And no matter how many times we hear it, we love to hear that story once again. But the other end of that spectrum is that maybe, just maybe, if we're honest with ourselves, there are moments in our life in which we don't have that opinion or that perception. Perhaps we've grown tired of the gospel. Perhaps it's lost its power, its influence, its edge. And we kind of grow tired of the stories that we've heard. It, it kind of reminds me of a time in which I was driving through Banff National Park. See, when I've been to Banff, I constantly think to myself, wow, what a beautiful, beautiful creation that God has made. I, I got a picture here for you. Here's a picture of Banff. And if you've been there before, uh, it's just absolutely amazing. It is mesmerizing. And yet, having driven through Banff, you know that um, it was an amazing feat for construction to occur in order to build highway systems through Banff. A very, very difficult process, which is why most highway systems through Banff are single lane highways. And having driven through there before, it is amazing to me to be able to see that there's always two different types of people on the road. There's tourists and there's what? Locals, right? And I remember the first time I drove, drove through there, I was like a tourist. We had someone who was kind of off the side of the road, but not really. They're kind of like half on the road, half off. And there's mountain goats all over the place. And what do they do? They park the car. They get out. They take pictures. The family kind of gets in front and they take pictures of themselves. They're just so elated to see all this beautiful creation and all of the animals. And, and they're just taking selfies and not really paying any regard for the people who are just waiting in line. And then, you know, 10 cars back, there's a local. 
And he has to experience this day after day after day after day. And he has worked a long day and he just wants to get home to his family. And he's like thinking to himself, have you never seen a mountain lion before? Have you never seen a goat before? Have you never seen a black bear before? Just another moose. Like, come on, get on with it. Move out of the way so that I can get home. And you see the differences of opinions that come out on that highway system. I I got a photo uh, that kind of helps capture this a little bit. I mean, look at her face. Look how happy they are, how excited they are to be with them. And then you got the cars in the back, they're just like, get out of the way, right? Or here's another picture just like it. You got cars lining up and everyone is slowing down because they need to take their pictures and they're like, just move out of the way already. And here's the question. Has the gospel made you a tourist or a local? Does the gospel continue to have this effect on you that day after day after day you marvel at its beauty? You park off on the side and you just take it all in? Or have you kind of been numbed by it? Do you just want to get home? Do you just kind of want to move on and get to the next thing? And that's the question that Jesus is putting in front of us. Has the gospel lost its power, or are you still that person who has this view that upon unearthing the gospel yet again, one more day, unearthing that gospel, highlighting that you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, has it transformed your heart today? Will it transform your heart tomorrow? I think for example of the story in Mark chapter 10, in which there's a a rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus And he's a very moral person. He's the type of guy who goes to church every Sunday when there's no COVID-19. The kind of guy who reads his Bible, who complies with the rules and regulations and Ten Commandments. Just a very stand-up, moral, God-fearing, Bible-believing guy. But then he starts thinking about eternity. And so he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know the law. And he quickly says, yes, I I know the law and, and I've followed it since my youth. And then Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you own and then come and follow me. And scripture says what? He went away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. See, here's a man who has been complying with all the rules but his heart has not been melted by the gospel. He still has run the risk in his own heart of comparing and contrasting the things that he has in this world to the infinitely precious gift of eternal glory with Jesus, being a part of the kingdom of God. He actually makes the comparison as though there is one. He doesn't have the heart to see the infinitely precious treasure that's been given to him. And the story ends in a tragedy. He walks away. He isn't saved as far as we know. He leaves. And so the question that we can ask ourselves is, do you know the infinitely precious gift that Jesus is presenting to you? 
Because if we saw that, it wouldn't even be a question. If we were stand-ins for the rich young ruler, we wouldn't have to go home and contemplate it. In that moment, we would say, of course, a million times out of a million, every single day and twice on Sundays, I would be willing to give up everything in order to be with Jesus because there's nothing more precious, there's nothing more beautiful. Do we have that kind of perspective? Does it melt our hearts? Are we mesmerized by the gospel? Here's the second question that we need to ask of ourselves. Do we see our Christian life as what we lose or what we gain? Do we see our Christian life as what we lose or what we gain? See, this is why I entitled this message, You Look Ridiculous. You might be saying, like, you look ridiculous. Do I have to look ridiculous? Because here's the thing. Do you think that the person who goes home and sells all of his possessions, his car, his wife's wedding ring, his mortgage, purchasing a second mortgage, everything that he owns in his house, his clothes, his food, his appliances, his toys, he consolidates and liquidates absolutely everything, do you think he's going to look ridiculous to the people around him? I mean, of course he is, right? Especially to his family. Let's just suppose he's like a, a very well-connected person in the community, has tons of family, tons of friends. Aren't they going to look at him and say, what are you doing? You look ridiculous. Why are you selling everything? And would they not take it a step further and start pitying him? Say, oh, his poor wife, his poor kids. Like, what are you doing? Why are you selling everything you own in order to purchase a, a plot of land? You're not even a farmer. You, you don't even have any interest in that land. Why would you go and buy that land? And it's way overvalued. It's way overpriced. You can't afford it. What are you doing, man? See, he's the only one who knows that there is a hidden treasure there that is of infinite value and worth. But into the eyes of the world that who do not have the eyes to see, they should look at this and say, you look ridiculous. Why would you make that sort of investment? They should say, what a foolish investment. But let me ask you this question. How many people, upon entering glory, will ask this question, why did I give up everything on earth in order to be here? What a foolish investment. How many people are going to ask that question? Zero? No one's going to ask that. They're going to say, of course I sold in. Of course I liquidated everything. Of course I was willing to lay down everything in my earthly life in order to obtain what is infinitely precious. Of course I'm willing to do that. Listen, you are not a fool to give up what you can't keep in order to obtain what you can always have. Right? Of course you should be willing to do that. Everything we have in this world is only temporary. Jesus tells us that moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. These are things that are of temporary value. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. But what he is giving you is infinitely precious, infinitely valuable. Do we have the heart to see that? That the gospel is that way to us. And so here's the third question, really coming down to brass tacks. This is a question that only you can begin to answer. Where do we need to look ridiculous? Where do we need to look ridiculous? Like, just look at verse 44. Jesus flies through this in literally five seconds. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought the field. That's it. That's the end of the story. 
But let's just put some teeth on this for a moment. Let's just pretend that this is a man named Bob, and, and he's in our congregation. His name is Bob Ahrens or Bob Vandervandivan, right? He's just someone in our church. And we find out that this guy, Bob, he's selling everything he has. He's purchased a second mortgage. He sold his cars. He liquidated all of his assets, got rid of his RSPs, sold his wife's wedding ring. He got rid of everything. He's even having a yard sale. And you meet him at the house and he says, hey, do you need some boxer briefs? 50% off. Hey, do you need a, a new pool? I'll give you the pool. Whatever you want, just give me the money because I need to purchase a little plot of land over here. Would you not in that moment say, listen, Bob, I need to sit you down. Would you not give him an intervention and to say, what's going on? You're being crazy. You're looking ridiculous. Cool your jets. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense what it is you are doing. And so here's a question for you that only you can answer. Where in your life do you need to look ridiculous in order for people to see that the gospel is shining through your life. Let me just give you a couple examples. I should be able to, with Julie, go to my financial advisor and sit down with him or her, and they would say to me, hey, listen, I've been reviewing your books, and why are you giving so much of your money away? Why are you being so incredibly generous? Like, I'm sure it feels good, and, and it's great for you to be tithing to a church and giving contributions to the poor and, and giving the last shirt on your back. All those things look nice, but, but you are sabotaging your future. Why are you doing that? You need to be more stewardly with your funds. You need to take care of yourself. You need to make sure you have enough of a nest egg for when you retire. And you are really setting yourself back in the way that you are using your funds. You're looking ridiculous. Or people might look at you in your sexual life or in your marriage and they might ask you, why are you following some antiquated book that was written over 2,000 years ago? Why are you having, being in a monogamous relationship with your one husband or with your one life for the rest of your life? Why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. Or they should be able to look at the way that you forgive. And they, they know the history, they know the background, they know that this person has harmed you in the most gratuitous of ways. And then they find out that you've been gracious and you forgave that person. They say, why would you do that after everything that they've done to you? You look ridiculous. In our finances, in our marriage, in our careers, in our business, in the way that we forgive, in every single aspect of our life, people should be able to look at us and if they don't see that hidden treasure, they should say to you, you look ridiculous. I want to share a passage of scripture with you. If your Bibles are open still in Matthew, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, starting at verse 14, because the Apostle Paul does an incredible job of highlighting what it is we're learning here through Jesus. Verse 14 of chapter 15 says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and, and my preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then guess what? Your faith, it's futile. It's useless. It's a waste, he's saying, if, if Christ has not been raised. You are still in your sins as well. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're also lost. If only for this life 
we have hope in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. And then he says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I love this. Listen, the apostle Paul says, if there is no buried treasure, and if you just sold absolutely everything in order to purchase a plot of land that doesn't have the buried treasure, then at the end of the day, everyone's going to look at you and they're going to say, you look ridiculous. Not only that, you are being ridiculous. If Christ hasn't been raised, then what are we doing? What a waste of our life. We're following some antiquated book that was written by a bunch of different people about some character named Jesus, and it has some pretty cool stories in it. But it's not worth surrendering your entire life to it, giving your one and only life to it. But it's only if the treasure is real is it of value. Because I promise you, Bob looks ridiculous until he unearths that buried treasure for all to see. And on a more serious note, I think, for instance, of this story, it has a lot in common with the story of Noah's Ark, where Noah, he is commanded by God to build an ark in the middle of a desert where it never rains, and his neighbors and his friends and even some family show up, and they mock him, they ridicule him, they say, why are you doing this? And years and years and decades and decades pass. And they're watching all this unfold. They're saying, what are you doing? What a waste of a life. And it's not until the rains come and the door is closed do they realize that they were the fools. And see, this is kind of a positive spin on that story. Eventually, Bob gets to unearth the buried treasure and share with everyone. And they say, of course you did that. I would do the same thing. But here's the thing, the way that this story goes, at least once we hit Revelation, is there will come a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but for some it'll be too late. For some it'll be too late. And they'll say to you, had I known, I would have given up everything. Of course you sold everything. Of course you gave up everything to have this. If only I knew. If only I knew. And so it's, it's my hope and my prayer for you as, as you are reminded once again of the gospel of God that you not only see it as something that is infinitely precious to you, but that you would have a longing and a desire to share it with others because if they could just see what you can see, would they not give up everything as well? Would they not have the opposite view of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 if they could just see Jesus for who he truly is? If they could just see the treasure that awaits them? And so it's my hope and prayer for you, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, that your heart would melt on account of the gospel and that you would be plunged forward to share the good news with those who do not yet know it. 
And if you have not been a follower of Jesus up to this point, my hope and my prayer for you is that the gospel of God would melt your heart and you would step over the line to follow him in obedience. And you would see it as an infinitely precious gift. But maybe, maybe just maybe, there's another element to this story that we haven't considered yet. If your Bibles are open, I want you to just go a little bit back from Matthew chapter 13, verse 45, and go to verse 37. Matthew chapter 13, verse 37. Here's what happens. This is the parable of the weeds, which we looked at two weeks ago, and there's a striking similarity to that parable to the one that we're looking at today. Verse 37 says, Jesus said, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And the field is the what? The world. That's us. The field is the world. And so maybe, just maybe, the way that this parable needs to go is Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like the Son of Man, like Jesus who found a lost and hidden treasure and upon finding it, does he not give up everything he has in order to bring it back? See, the way that we've been looking at this up to this point is that the treasure is the gospel and the person who's digging in the field is us. But maybe, just maybe, the character in the story of G- is Jesus and the treasure is you and me. And if that's the case, if that's the case, there's three questions that I think we need to ask of ourselves. The first one is this. Do you understand the infinite value of who you are to Jesus? I mean, just think about this for a moment. Do you understand what you are valued at, what you are worth in Jesus' eyes? You are so precious to him that he willingly came from heaven down to earth and took upon himself flesh and blood and he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died and he stretched out his hands at Calvary, at Golgotha, the land of the skull, so that we could be set free. God the Father turned his face away from Jesus so that he could look at us with radiant joy. That's the way God looks at us. He sees us as infinitely precious. Do you have that type of view? Do you understand the way that Jesus views you? The second question you need to ask is, do you see your life as yours? Or do you see your life as his? In the context of everything that Jesus has done for you, he redeemed you, he bought you back from the auction, he saved your life from the pit. And so the question isn't, do you give God a nod from time to time? Is he your coach, or your spiritual consultant, the question is, have you surrendered your life to him and given him everything because he knows way better than Justin knows? Have you already tried your own way? And are you ready to give your life to him? And the third and final question that you can ask yourself is this. Where do you look ridiculous if if you are, in fact, the hidden treasure of God? Where do you look ridiculous? See, if I have a proper perspective of myself and the way that God sees me, then I should always have my head held high, not in pride, not in arrogance, 
but in total surrender to the God who loves me. In the sure and certain knowledge that regardless of the circumstances that may come, regardless of what I might face, nothing will take me out of the palm of God's hand. Do you have that type of view that recognizes that you are infinitely precious to God? And on account of that, do you leave every single morning out your door with your head held high? So you might look at me and you say, Justin, those were two good stories. Which of them is true? And the answer is, yes. Yes. This is a story about a man like myself or a woman who unearths hidden treasure, the gospel. And upon finding it, do they not once again bury it, run into town, sell everything they have, lose everything else for the sake of that gospel? But it's also a story about Jesus and the way that he sees you and the way that he sees me. He looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, you are of infinite value to me. The one thing I didn't have before the cross was you, and so I willingly suffered and died. I died a sinner's death even though I was perfect so that I could have you back. You are the hidden treasure. Both are true. And to both, we rejoice. Matthew chapter 13 Verse 44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the gospel. we ask that you would melt our hearts, that we would catch a glimpse of that story and that we would know full well that it is true and that we would have a heart and a willingness to lay down everything else in our life because we know that it pales in comparison to the gospel. And for those of us who have stepped over the line to follow Jesus, we ask that you would give us a desire to share this message with others who have not yet encountered the gospel so that we never have to experience a moment in our future in which we would think to ourselves, if only I had told them. Why didn't I tell them? Pierce our hearts, Lord. Help us to know the gospel in a new way today. And by your spirit, help us to unearth the hidden treasure of the good news. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.